This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Again, on a typical uh, week, we're going to have expository Bible preaching. We're going to take a passage of Scripture. We're going to take a look at it. We're going to dig in deep to that. We're going to tie it into the totality of the rest of Scripture and bring out a truth that you and I can uh, put in our uh, hand and walk with the rest of the week. And let me just tell you this by way of, of education for you. Expository Bible preaching is the best way to preach the Bible. And I don't say that out of opinion or like people that don't do it as good as us or anything like that. The Bible speaks for itself. I don't need to try to grab 20 different verses and put them into an order that I like to be able to say what the Bible says. The Bible speaks. Uh, when, when Paul talks to the church at Rome, I don't need to add anything to that or find other verses to, to get my argument across or anything like that. I just need to say what the Bible says. Uh, however, that being said, there are certain times where we need to look topically uh, at, at a particular topic. For example, when we take a look at things like uh, depression, let's take a look at the totality of Scripture. Hey, we take a look at the cross of Christ and everything that that means to you and I. Uh, we would do ourselves a disservice if we only looked at one uh, couple of verses of Scripture. We need to look at the totality of Scripture and see how all that ties together. So again, I say that because this is an anomaly. This isn't the norm. Uh, and you know that if you've been at Hui Kala for any length of time, we find a passage of Scripture and we expose the truth there, expository Bible preaching. That's good Bible preaching. The problem comes when we preach the Bible topically on a regular basis because then I can make the Bible say anything that I want it to say. For example, uh, I'm going to preach a message on love. Uh, okay, my points are love God, love your neighbor, love your spouse, love your enemy. And then uh, that's kind of my, my framework that I have there. Uh, and then I'm going to have, you know, love mankind, love the earth, uh, love, you know, the dolphins and all this other stuff. And I'm going to try to find verses, you know, the, the heavens declare the handiwork of God's creation. So creation, we have to love that. And that means loving dolphins. We're not really saying what the Bible says. And so again, topical preaching is necessary when we're looking at a particular topic, but it should be the exception, not the rule. And so again, good Bible preaching ex- exposes what the Bible already says. Uh, and again, you and I cannot improve upon God's word uh, at all. So uh, that's just kind of a, a little aside there. Acts chapter two tonight is where we're gonna be at. Uh, we're gonna start in verse number um, <clears throat> Verse number 37, uh, we see the, the day of Pentecost, and we're going to come back here a couple different times through our study here. The, the day of Pentecost was a unique day in the life of the church. I'll take a look at exactly how unique it was in just a moment. Uh, basically, the, the apostles had been waiting uh, for the Holy Spirit to come, and the Holy Spirit had come, and then they began to preach the gospel. Uh, they began to speak in languages that were unknown to them, but they were known to the people around them. And every man heard the word of God preached in their own language. We find Peter wrapping up his gospel presentation and in verse number 37, Acts chapter 2, verse number 37. Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed had all things common and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them into all men as every man had need and they continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So here we see a miraculous supernatural event that took place on the day of Pentecost where uh, the church basically exploded. Uh, 3,000 people were saved that first day. And then the Bible tells us from that day forward, people were being saved and added to the church on a daily basis. Uh, We get a few chapters over and we find that uh, two more thousand were added to the church and then 5,000 were added to the church. And then believers began to multiply uh, through the church. And this was really the beginning of the explosion of the church as we know it. As we look at church, though, uh, and we understand ecclesiology, and that might be a new term for some of you, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, The word ekklesia is the Greek word that's found uh, in the Bible in the New Testament for the word church. Ekklesia means a called out assembly or congregation or a gathering. Now, again, uh, words are important, and so the idea of being called out means that we were previously in one place and we were called out of that place to gather together in another place. That's the idea behind the church is that you and I were taken out of the world and set apart for the work of Christ. And so again, uh, we see this play out throughout scripture where the uh, the Bible calls the, the people that make up the church that are saved and baptized and walking with Jesus calls them saints. Again, not because they're perfect or because they uh, get their their pictures on stained glass or anything like that, but the word saints mean the set apart or holy ones. And so again, we see the church as something unique in the fact that it's a group of people who have been called out of this world to to gather together uh, for the purpose of worshiping Jesus. It comes from the uh, Greek word kaleo. Uh, That word kaleo literally means to call or to summon or to beckon. So again, the idea of ecclesia is called out. And who would we be called out by in this case here? Anybody want to take a guess? God and Jesus. There you go. Perfect. Can't go wrong with either one of those answers, right? And so as we take a look at the church, and as we look at the church, it's important to understand the word church in the New Testament is used 117 different times. Of those 117 times, 87 times it's talking about a local body of believers, a group of people that have gathered together for the purpose of worshiping Jesus together is what it's talking about when it communicates the local church. Now, the, the other times that it's mentioned in Scripture, I want to be clear on this because sometimes people get really uptight and, and nervous about this when I, I say this. The other times that it's talking about the church, that it's not talking about a local assembly like what we have here, it's talking about the universal church, Okay. Now, again, some people just might have gotten really uneasy by hearing that term in and of itself. But when we talk about that, the universal church, we're not talking about a church that exists out there in the world somewhere. We're talking about all believers worldwide throughout all of church history who have been saved by Jesus Christ and placed under his authority and lordship. So when the the Bible says things like Jesus Christ is the head of the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's the head of who we call a Baptist church, which that's applicable for sure. It's talking about all believers worldwide. 
when the Bible speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ is to have the preeminence in the church, is he talking about our church? Definitely, but also through all churches worldwide. So again, we have to take a look at that and what it means in that sense. I say that it might make some people feel uncomfortable because I've heard good, well-meaning pastors preach against the concept of a universal church. That uh, every time the Bible talks about the local church, it's talking about a group of people who've gathered together in a specific location. And unfortunately, that just doesn't hold a lot of water biblically. But the, the flip side of that, too, is that I've heard people say, well, I don't attend church anywhere. I go to the universal church. Yeah, that's not a real church as far as the gathering of the Christian saints is, is meant. So again, when people say like, oh, I don't go to church, I'm part of the universal church, I say, well, who's the pastor of the universal church? Well, we don't have a pastor. Exactly. That means you have no accountability, no oversight, no overseer. Uh, You have no one guiding and shepherding. Uh, And so again, the, the universal church, when people say, well, I don't go to church because I'm a member of the universal church, that just doesn't really bear a lot of weight. And so, but some people swing the pendulum to the opposite direction and say, there's no such thing as a universal church. The fact of the matter is, is the only place where the universal church will ever be seen together, worshiping together, is going to be in heaven one day. All believers throughout all human history will be gathered together in the throne room of Jesus Christ singing praise and worship to him. But what a day that's going to be. But until then, God has given us a local body of believers to gather together with Now, it's important to understand as we kick off this study of ecclesiology, which is, again, is a study of the church. As we take a look at church leadership and how churches should be governed and uh, led, it's important to to understand that we have a few rules that we follow. First of all, as we study Jesus' church, the Bible must be our guide. That's just kind of a no-brainer for a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, isn't it? At no point will you hear through this study, will we do the things like this in our church because that's the way that it's always been done. You won't ever hear that. And again, if you attend a church that says, well, we do that because that's the way it's always been done, you need to dig a little bit deeper and you might need to find a biblical church. We don't say, hey, this is what we're doing because this is what church history teaches us. The Bible is our guide. And that doesn't just go for the study of ecclesiology. That just goes for life. So again, when we say we're a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, we say that the Bible is the foundation for everything in our life, especially uh, the matters of faith and practice. It's also important to understand that as we study the book of Acts, we see a transitional period in the church. So many times people get their ecclesiology mixed up because they use the book of Acts as a playbook, as a guidebook. This is exactly how it's done. But there's some things that take place in the book of Acts that are transitional. Uh, For example, uh, we see in the book of Acts the laying on the hands of the Holy Spirit. The apostles, after people would be saved, would lay their hands uh, on people and they would receive the Holy Spirit. That was a transitional period We find a man by the name of Simon in the church there at that time who says, hey, I want that gift. How much does it cost? Like, I want to be able to lay hands on people and they they get the Holy Spirit. How much can I buy that gift for? And then from that point forward, we never see anyone have their hands laid upon to receive the Holy Spirit, ever. And so this was just a transitional time uh, from the the beginning of the church uh, to the church as we know it. We also find, uh, for example, the introduction of deacons into the church. That was a transition. Uh, Acts chapter 7, we find uh, the first deacons in the church. Also in the book of Acts, we don't really find any guidelines for clear pastoral leadership. We know that the church scattered and these churches 
popped up all around, but there wasn't really any, any indication as far as who should lead these churches or how they should be led or the things that should be focused on. And so we see a little bit of a transition period in this time. And so again, we can't just take the book of Acts and say, hey, this is how church is done. We have to look at the totality of Scripture. Again, if you want to figure out how church is done, you need to read the epistles to the churches, right? First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Those will give us indication of how the church is done. You want to find out how churches are led? Read First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. Those will give us clear guidelines as far as what church leadership should look like as well. And so again, some people get their ecclesiology mixed up when they just zero in on the book of Acts. It's also important to understand as we study the book of Acts, we have to view certain events as descriptive rather than prescriptive. <laughs> what does that mean? Much of the book of Acts is just telling us what took place in this supernatural time of the birth of the church. It's not meant to be an every Sunday thing. For example, we just saw how uh, Peter preached the gospel, 3,000 people were saved, baptized, added to the church. That was a description of something that had taken place. Well, how did that happen? Well, if you read a little bit earlier in chapter two, the Holy Spirit came down and sat upon men's heads as cloven tongues of fire so that when they spoke, everybody heard the, the word in their own language. It wasn't like these guys were, knew all the languages the Holy Spirit was using those languages. They would speak in the language that they knew and everyone heard it in their own language. So again, it's not a necessarily supernatural speaking as much as a supernatural hearing. So again, I've heard, again, well-meaning Christians who say, oh Lord, give us another Pentecost. We pray for cloven tongues of fire. That's not gonna happen again. It was a one-time event that was supernatural in the beginning and the genesis of the church as we know it. It's not supposed to happen again. I've seen people before take a look at the passage we just read where the Bible says they had all things in common. That means communal living. What happened was some people decided to follow Jesus and their family disowned them. They kicked them out of the house. They lost their jobs. They were persecuted. And so they say, hey, come move in with me. I don't have a lot of money. No problem. I'll pay for whatever you need. Hey, all of us can just share our food here because we're all part of one big family. That's a descriptive event. That's not a prescriptive event. The church is not supposed to be communal living. Uh, the church is not supposed to adopt a communism view of, of living together. That's just, it's just telling us what took place back then. It's always interesting to me when people say, oh, we need to just copy the book of Acts, communal living, and uh, think, cloven tongues of fire, signs, miracles, and wonders. And I always ask them, uh, you know, what do you think about Acts chapter 5? Do you think that that's prescriptive as well? And they kind of get a little puzzled look on their face. What's Acts 5? Ananias and Sapphira, right? You didn't bring your tithe? Really? Okay. Boom, you're dead. Hey, guys, could you carry him out? Oh, you didn't bring your child. Boom, you're dead. Carry him out. Does anybody else want to hold back on the Holy Spirit tonight? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> right? That's just telling us what took place at a slice in time in the history of the church. That's not meant to be an every Sunday kind of thing. You know, Peter, as he goes into the temple, there's a lame man there who sits at the gate known as Beautiful. And he says, hey, man, you got anything? Peter says, silver and gold have I none but in the name of Jesus Christ, take up your bed and walk. And the dude, the Bible says his legs got strength and he stood up and he began to walk and people flipped out and they ran over to where Peter was. And what does Peter do? Peter starts preaching the gospel at him. Hey, you're shocked by this, but I'm shocked by the fact that you would put Jesus Christ to death. And man, he let him have it. 
No. Should we go about using signs, miracles, and wonders and causing the lame to walk uh, to present the gospel? No, nope. that's just telling us a point in time, a snapshot in the Bible where things like that took place. So it's important as we look at the book of Acts, this is not necessarily a play-by-play on how things were, should be done in the church. It's just telling us what took place during that time. It's also important as we look at church history, we have to evaluate it within the lens of Scripture. Church history, church councils, or church creeds can never be appealed to above Scripture. Ever. Well, did you know that the early church baptized babies? Well, the, the early church was 100% in error then. Oh, they've done it for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And they've been in error for thousands of years because you can't point to a single place in all of the Bible where a baby was ever baptized. Ever. You find where Christians were baptized after they repented of their sin. You find Philip finding the Ethiopian eunuch out in the book of Acts, out in the middle of the, the Gaza desert, who says, what do I have to do to be baptized? You need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he did. And then after that, he was able to get baptized. But look, if there's a place in the Bible where you said that babies need to be baptized, we'd be dunking kids every Sunday here. But it's just not there. People sometimes what do you think about the Council of 1682? Man, I don't know what happened at 16, 1625 yesterday, right? Uh, I, I, what is this council that you speak of? I have no idea. Oh, does our church agree with the Nicene Creed? I couldn't tell you the Nicene Creed from the Apostles' Creed. I, I'm to be honest with you, really. Uh, talk to John Stoker if you want to know about the Nicene Creed. Uh, again, again, what does the Bible say? Do I agree with the Bible? Yes. I don't know what the Nicene Creed uh, is, I don't know about any other creeds, but I know what the Bible says. And so many times people get hung up, you know, does your church believe in the, you know, the confessional of the 1725 Baptists? I, I don't know. Does it line up with Scripture? If it does, I believe it. If it doesn't, I don't. And so again, so many times people say, well, I know what the Bible says, but you know, the, this first council of, of this gathering of the church believed this. Hey, we can't appeal to creeds, councils, or even church history over what the Bible says. Because as you know, there have been points in time in history where the church has been dead wrong. You say, did you really just say that? I did. You take a look at the majority of the letters that are written to the church. Mind you, most of them less than 50 years of Christ being left this planet. There's already doctrinal error all over the place. The whole book of Galatians was written because people tried to add works and Judaism to salvation. There's false teaching in the early church and it had to be rooted out and gotten rid of. So again, we can't look at church history or one particular person and what they had to say about church history and say this is the truth or this is the way that it should be. So we have to take a look at what does the Bible say. Now as we take a look at the history of our church, there's usually two compete, competing views on this and, and honestly, at the end of the day, it's just conjecture, it's just uh, talk, it's something to argue about with, with your uh, theological friends to make them think that you're really smart. But the question being, when did the church begin? <gasps> was it started when Christ called his apostles or was it started on the day of Pentecost? I don't know. And then it's like, wow, well, that's a deep question, right? Because here's the thing. If it started on the day of Pentecost, then Jesus didn't start the church. His apostles did. And how can you have a church that wasn't started by Jesus, but was started by his apostles? Well, if Jesus started the church, 
Then he started the church with a bunch of people who didn't have the Holy Spirit. And can you have a church that doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Ooh, deep, right? Hmm. Here's the thing. If you know people that enjoy talking about these things, you know just a bunch of nerds is all there is to it, right? And, and I'll admit, I'm probably one of those nerds. But, uh, and again, we can, we can talk about this ad nauseum. And, and as Trey uh, prepares for his ordination, one of the requirements that he has is that he puts together his own doctrinal statement, uh, and he's able to defend it and talk it out. And so just about every single day, we're having Bible nerd conversations about stuff like this. So then it comes down to, okay, well, when did the church actually start? And we would say uh, that the church started when Jesus called his apostles. Uh, the church was established when he called his apostles. Jesus finds Peter, James, and John fishing. He says, hey, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. What was he doing? Was he just calling some, some co-laborers for his earthly ministry? No, he was beginning the church as we know it. He was laying the foundation. And again, if you take a look at the, the Bible, it tells us that the foundation of the church was the prophets and the apostles. And so we would say that the church was established when Christ called his apostles. As Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter one, he stands on a hillside and basically gives them final marching orders. Acts chapter one, verse number eight, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses in me both in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he ascended into heaven. Those are his final orders that he gave. Who did he give those orders to? He gave it to all of the disciples. Now it's important, again, if you know what disciple means, it means a committed follower of Christ. So the words disciple and apostle are not always synonymous. And so there's 100 plus people when Jesus ascended into heaven and so that commission that was given was given to those people who would eventually become the church at Jerusalem. And so we would say that it was established when Jesus Christ called his apostles. We would say that the church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because that's the day that they received the Holy Spirit and began to preach the word. Again, we find Acts chapter two, verse number one, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the house where they were sitting and appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we see a supernatural event that took place when the church was empowered with the Holy Ghost. What happens next? Peter stands up and lets it rip. A gospel presentation that had never been heard like that before ever. Hey, Jesus Christ, whom by the way you crucified is Christ and Lord. And man, he preached Jesus. And again, we saw that verse number 37, they were pricked to their hearts. Hey, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we fix what we've broken? And again, that's just a really good aside right here. Every good gospel presentation should leave someone thinking, well, how do I fix this mess that I find myself in? And the answer is always Jesus, always. And so did the church begin with Christ or on the day of Pentecost? The answer to that is yes. No, it's an either or. No, it's a both and. You can't have a church that started without Jesus. You just can't. You can't have a church that isn't filled with the Holy Ghost. You just can't. And so we have both of those working together to establish the church as we know it. And again, if you need to put a point in time on it, when was the church started? Oh, the church was started in the heart of God in eternity past. <laughs> Is that not a nerdy answer? Uh, I don't know. 
So again, it comes down to a matter of the church as we know it became the church as we know it on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people saved, baptized, added to the church, and it would never, here's the awesome part. From the day of Pentecost until the day that we sit right now, the church started in such a way that it has been impossible, impossible to stop. People throughout all of church history have tried to stop the church by persecuting Christians, putting them to death, forbidding them, making it against the law. There's a time in church history, we'll take a look at this next week, where it was against the law to own a copy of the Bible. Punishable by imprisonment and or death. Just to have a copy of the Bible. But you know what? You can't stop the Jesus' church. Because the promise that he made was that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So from that day of Pentecost until now, the church has been on a trajectory that no one has ever been able to stop. And so as we look at things like church ownership, it's important to understand from the very beginning, who does the church belong to? First of all, the church belongs to Jesus. <coughs> now I'll pause here and talk about a couple different things. First of all, if you were to pull up our uh, um, our IRS 501c3 nonprofit, it's going to list me as the president, again, because the government requires that we have some sort of board. Uh, if you take a look at the state of Hawaii uh, and our filings with the state of Hawaii, you'll find that uh, I'm listed as the, uh, the president, and then I think we have to have a vice president and a treasurer, which basically is our deacons, and honestly, I couldn't tell you which one is, is what role, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, because the church belongs to Jesus. My name might be on some paperwork with the state or the federal government as a requirement to operate and function as a 501c3 nonprofit, but let's make no mistake, this church doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Jesus, period. Now, that's the first thing I wanna cover. Secondly, is it wrong for you and I to say that Huikala is our church? I don't think so at all because I don't think anybody believes that you and I are the owners of this church. Nobody thinks that it's a corporation where we are stockholders. Uh, we are looking to increase ourselves uh, by our shares value. And so I don't think it's wrong when you say, hey, you should totally come check out our church. I'd love for you to be my guest and meet my church family. Is it wrong? I don't think so because I don't think that we're claiming ownership of the church. I think we're claiming buy-in to Jesus' church. Did you get that? When I'm talking with people, uh, sometimes newer folks uh, that have been attending uh, church here for a while, they'll say things like, oh, well, ever since I started coming to your church, and I stop and I say, our church. What do you mean? You're a part of this as much as I am. This is our church. And I don't say that again because we're the owners of it. I'm saying because we've bought in to the work that Jesus is doing here, and we have put our roots down, and we've established our life with these people, and that makes it very meaningful and very personal to us. But make no mistake, the owner of the church is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 8. This is critical, and again, if you're taking notes, you should write this down, Colossians 1, 8. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have preeminence. So when it comes to the church, who should be the top dog? Always Jesus. 100% of the time. That's why I absolutely hate with every fiber of my being. Kids, you shouldn't use the word hate. Uh, it's not a good word. Uh, but uh, I abhor. Most kids don't know that word. Um, I absolutely detest Christian celebrity culture. Hey, if anybody's going to get preeminence in the church, it's Jesus, not a pastor. <laughs> 
it's funny, somebody, uh, one time I was at our church and they said, oh, you know, I got led to Christ by a famous worship leader. Please. Really? Famous worship leader? What does that even mean? And it's shameful that we've created a culture where people stand for hours to get a picture or a selfie with some superstar celebrity who jumps in the back of a, you know, Cadillac Escalade and whisked off to, you know, a private lunch somewhere. Come on. That's not pastoring. Again, people attend churches where they've never even spoken to their pastor before and they've been there for a decade plus. I don't get that. Again, if anybody is to be above all, it's Jesus Christ. If it's anybody who should have the preeminence, it's Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was talking over this, with I think, with the Tuba the other night uh, and one of the other ladies. We were talking about the song Above All by, by, I think, Michael W. Smith made it popular in like the 80s, you know, um, that uh, on the cross, you thought of me above all is basically the chorus of it. And I said, I like the song. It's a fun song. It evokes a lot of, uh, for me, nostalgia. I heard it sung when I was a kid in church in the 80s and stuff like that. But the, get this, the idea that as Christ hung upon the cross, suffering for the sins of mankind, the thing that was on his mind above everything else in all of eternal history was me? I don't think so. I think the glory of God was on his mind. I think appeasing the righteous anger and wrath of the Father was on his mind. I don't think so much of myself to think that as Jesus hung there in agony, he was just thinking about good old Anthony King. Now again, I like the song, and again, I think this is where we need to have a delineation, and I realize I'm giving you like a thousand things that don't even pertain to the message tonight, but it's helpful. I just want to pastor you a little bit here, all right? I think there's a delineation between Christian entertainment, the stuff that's good to listen to, uh, I like the sound of it, I like the song of it, I like the overall idea of it, and worship music that should be together in a congregation. You know, and so, again, I think we need to have discernment with that. Uh, my wife, um, <laughs> she, she gets upset with me because she's like, I'm going to let you listen to this song. I really like it, and I don't want to hear what you have to think about it. It's like, okay. <laughs> she's like, I'm going to rip it to shreds. And she's like, just listen to it. It's a nice song. Okay, fine. And I'll listen to it, and it's fine. If you want to listen to that, that's great. Uh, but again, if you want to get deep, theological worship from it, uh, maybe dial it back a notch, okay? Now, look, I'd, I'd a whole lot rather my wife listen to, uh, you know, some Christian music than to listen to, you know, whatever's playing on pop radio. So, uh, again, but again, I think we have to, need to have discernment with that. But when it comes to the glory of the church, it's Jesus is tops 100% of the time. And, and it, know this, anytime you see a church that places a pastor or any other celebrity in the church above the preeminence of Christ, it is destined for failure 100% of the time. It will implode. Because here's the thing, that leader at some point is going to die. We've seen a, a lot recently that leader will fail morally and news travels really fast over the internet these days and people are always saving text messages and, and direct messages and uh, private videos and stuff like that. That's been said before, and it's so true. Whatever we idolize, we will eventually demonize. And the higher you lift somebody up, the further that they have to fall. And so look, there's no place for any of that celebrity culture in Christ's church. Paul says, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that Paul considered himself to be. And, and Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners as well. So again, when we take a look at the church, the church belongs to Jesus. Secondly, the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. 
Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, Paul was speaking to a group of pastors there. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so the blood of Jesus Christ that we took a look at this morning that offered you and I salvation also gave you and I a community, a family, a gathering, the ability to be able to be encouraged and given strength by an organization that Jesus Christ created that was supernatural started by him, empowered by the Spirit, and will live on forever because it was purchased by his blood. Next, Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 1.20, which is wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He hath put all things under his feet and gave him all the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So again, Ephesians here and also 1 Corinthians tells us that the church is like a body and the head of the body is always Christ. You might be able to live without your right pinky finger. Would it be inconvenient? For sure. You cannot live without a head. And let me just say this. When Christ is not the head of the church, you cannot have a church. I'll say that again. When Christ is not the head of the church, you cannot have a church. So again, again, when we talk about things like flow charts, so many people think like the flow chart of the church is like, oh, of course Christ, uh, Christ is at the top and that's, that's a given. And then there's the pastors and then there's the deacons and then there's the, you know, lay, lay volunteers of the church and then there's everybody else. That's not a biblical flow chart. There's Christ and then there's everybody else. Now, the everybody else at the bottom of the flow chart function in different roles and different capacities, but please understand this, nobody's above anybody else in the, in the, the flow chart of the church. Now, again, do we have different roles and functions that we perform? Definitely. Just like, the, again, 1 Corinthians tells us that some people are an ear and some people are an eye. Some people uh, are a big toe. But you have a role that you fulfill. But please understand that Christ is always the head of the church and everybody else is just a bond slave doing what they're told. So again, church belongs to Jesus as far as ownership. Now, what constitutes a church? What actually passes at a church, first and foremost, it must be founded on Christ alone. Again, you take anything that's founded upon a man or a movement, it's no longer a church. And again, it's really easy to spot cults when you find out who the leader of the cult is. Really easy. But you know, the funny thing is, is we don't apply that same thing to churches, do we? We find some church is led by a powerful personality and someone who's leading people astray doctrinally, but we say things like, oh, there's a lot of people that love God there. There's a lot of people being led astray there. So again, is it founded upon Christ? Again, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. Uh, turn over here in your Bible, if you will, Matthew chapter 13, because this passage here is absolutely critical to understanding the church. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus asks the, an all-important question that you and I should have uh, a really good answer to. Matthew chapter 16, starting verse number 13. Matthew 16, 13. 
When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 13, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say I, the Son of Man, am? Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? This is a great question for anybody who claims to be a Christian. Who is Jesus Christ? You ask the Jehovah's Witnesses, you will get an answer that does not line up with Scripture. You ask the Mormons, who is Jesus Christ? You will get an answer that does not line up with Scripture. So the question is, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying in this passage. I'll give you first the misapplication of this. Jesus is saying, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so again, that fits in really good with the narrative that the church started on the day of Pentecost without Christ, but with who at the head? Peter. Very convenient narrative. The problem is, is it doesn't line up with Scripture. Jesus asked an important question, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you are the Christ, you are the chosen one, you're the prophesied one. And Jesus says, you're right. And upon this rock, not Peter, the rock of truth, that I am the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So again, Jesus is saying the rock of the foundation of the church is the fact that I am the Christ, I am the Son of God. That's what builds this foundation, not Peter. I mean, look, if the best we can do is build our church upon a guy who denied Jesus three times, that's the best we could come up with? Come on, we gotta do better than that. I need my church to be built on something that's greater than I, that has a, a founder with no failings, that's perfect. And that's Jesus Christ. And so again, we see the massive doctrinal error in the Catholic church where they say that Peter was the first pope. Huh. Mind you the fact that Peter had a mother-in-law, which meant he had to be married. Uh, and so again, that's one of the things that's against being a, a pope or a father or whatever you want to call it. But uh, you never mind any of that. But again, the church was not built upon Peter. The church was built upon Christ and foundational doctrinal truth that Christ was the Messiah. Next, the church is comprised of a called out assembly of saved and baptized believers. We see that in Acts chapter two, verse number, 40, verse number 41. And they gladly received his word, were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. I don't know how long it took to have 3,000 people confess their faith in Christ and to bring them into water and baptize them. But I imagine it's kind of an all-day thing. But that's what took place on the day of Pentecost. And the church, again, started something that the world has never been able to stop. You and I are seated here today because that first day, 3,000 people says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I want to follow him, whatever that means. And we're here today because of those people's decisions and so the church has always been comprised of saved, baptized individuals. Did you know that there are churches in America that if you show up for more than two weeks in a row, you're automatically a member? Like your name gets added to the membership role and you're just a member. 
I know some folks who've attended, who we called before, that attended another church and served in children's ministry for years. They weren't even saved. Like they came to Huey Collin and got saved. Never heard the gospel before. Leading children's ministry? Heavens. That's not Jesus' church. Jesus' church is not made up of a bunch of unregenerate sinners that don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's not a church. And so again, if it's not comprised of saved baptized individuals. Now, does that mean 100% of people that come have to be saved and baptized? No. I was thankful that two ladies raised their hand this morning and said that they were not saved. I'm going to follow up on them this week and try to get a gospel presentation to them. Uh, as a man who came to the 8 o'clock service, as a, a friend of another guy, I asked him on the sidewalk, hey, uh, have you ever been saved or born again? He, grown man in his mid-20s, said to me today, I don't really know what any of that means. He said, this is my first time in church like ever. Wow, okay. And I praise God for that. Again, I grew up in a, a place in Kentucky where you would, you would have to look for weeks to find somebody in their 20s that had never gone to church before. At least once, you know. Look, folks, our city's full of people like that. But our church cannot be comprised at the core. The people who make up the church are people that don't know Jesus, don't follow Jesus. That's just not biblical. A church is also dedicated to the carrying out of the mission of the church. Again, we see this in the passage we read in Acts chapter 2, verse number 42, and they continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, and fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and they all that believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So again, we see them carrying out the mission of the church. We're going to get to the mission of the church in just a moment. They're also committed to carrying out the ordinances of Jesus. So the church exists for the carrying out of the Great Commission and carrying out the things that Jesus has ordained that we as the church do. Now, the, Jesus gives us two ordinances, two things he said. You need to do this, and when you do it, it's a picture of me and who I am. First of all, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are ordinances as they're things that Jesus ordained himself. Next Sunday, we'll baptize. Uh, we have right now 11 people that are getting baptized next Sunday. I think the record that we have is 12. Uh, and so again, I mean, like we're pushing. Like, so if there's somebody out there that's like on the fence, like help us out, you know? Seriously. Just hook us up. Like, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding, all right? Nobody should get baptized because they're trying to push the number up, okay? That was totally a joke for those of you that didn't know, okay? You should want to get baptized because it honors the Lord. You want to follow Jesus, not because we're trying to break some record. That's crazy talk. Uh, but again, baptism, which we, we do to show the death, burial, and resurrection, just like they did in the book of Acts. It's a commandment that when we're, we're saved, we get baptized. That's a command. And again, uh, I always say this too. If people are ever on the fence about, like, hey, I'm praying about baptism, you don't have to pray about it. It's a command. I don't, I don't have to pray whether or not I, I stay with my wife or not. That's a command. That what God has joined together, no man puts asunder. So you don't have to pray about commandments. You just need to obey them. And so, again, when it comes to baptism, it's just one of those things you need to do it because it's something that Jesus has ordained. The other thing that Jesus ordained is the Lord's Supper, sometimes referred to as communion, the Lord's table, uh, whatever you want to call it. Now, some of you might be sitting here saying, like, I've been at Hui Collar for a while, and I've never one time ever seen us take communion together. Great. I'm glad that you... That you uh, Observe that. 
Huikala practice is what we would sometimes refer to as closed communion. What that means is that communion is only available to folks who are members of who we call a Baptist church. If you want to know more details on that, I, I got them for you. Again, uh, we get it, that from the, the book of 1 Corinthians where it talks about the Lord's Supper that some people ate or drank unworthily and because of that they've gotten sick and some of them have died. And that when we eat or drink unworthily, we're eating and drinking unto ourselves greater condemnation or damnation. As a pastor, I take that super seriously. And so I'm not gonna hand you know, the, the Lord's Supper to somebody over here that I don't know their salvation testimony. I don't know if they're saved. I don't know if they think that they're taking the Lord's Supper because that will save them. And so for that reason, we made a decision for, it's for church members who I know for a fact are saved, baptized, walking with Jesus the way that they should because they've committed to do that. And some people say, well, I wanna take, I wanna take communion. Join the church, simple as that. And you can join the church if you're a saved, baptized uh, person that's walking with Jesus. That, that's easy, that's the easy step. And so again, we practice closed communion, so we do that three times a year. We do it uh, on, uh, at Christmas, at Easter, uh, and at the anniversary of our church in October. And so three times a year we receive communion. It's a private service outside of regular church times where our church members gather together uh, and we remember what Jesus Christ has done through the Lord's Supper. Now, it's important to understand that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. Baptism is not a sacrament. Again, it's really important that we define terms and we use terms appropriately. The word sacrament means a religious ceremony or ritual that is regarded as imparting divine grace, such as baptism, the Eucharist, penance, and the anointing of sick. Now, key phrase there that makes us know for a fact that no Bible-believing Christian will use the word sacrament because that phrase, imparting divine grace. Do you know what that means? It means it saves you. It gives you, imparts to us, God's grace. We receive God's grace by faith and repentance. That's how we receive, and that's it. If we have to add to that the Lord's Supper or baptism or confession or things like that, those are sacraments. And so it's important that we as Bible-believing Christians refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper never as a sacrament. That's, that's important because the word itself means this is how you receive God's grace. And so baptism and the Lord's uh, Supper are not sacraments because sacraments aren't biblical. Nowhere in Scripture can you point to a single place where someone received the grace of God by a sacrament. There's a slide for that next one. Is there a slide? I think I made this slide, and so maybe there's, oh, there it is, yeah. <laughs> Sacraments are not biblical. Now, do I know of churches who use the term sacrament to describe the Lord's Supper? Yeah, and I think it's just ignorance on their part because I don't think they really believe that that gives you salvation. But again, that's a, that's a like orange flag. It's not even a yellow flag. It's not quite a red flag, but it's an orange flag. Somebody says the word sacrament. It's just like, ah, what do you, what do you mean by that? Ordinance is the term because it's something that Jesus Christ himself has ordained. And it's the church's responsibility to carry out that ordinance. And so I say that because you don't have people over at your house on a Friday night and, and uh, play some Uno and grill some burgers and take the Lord's Supper afterwards, right? You don't do that. That's something that's given to the church. You don't have some people over to throw Frisbee in the, the, the backyard and then say, hey man, did you wanna get baptized? We got a pool over here if you're interested in that and then baptize somebody in your swimming pool. You don't do that because these are ordinances that are given for the local church to carry out. 
Why? Because the church is responsible for verifying that these things are done appropriately. That unbelievers don't get baptized, unbelievers don't take the Lord's Supper, people are living in open rebellious sin before God, don't take the Lord's Supper and don't get baptized. And so again, really important to understand these things are given to the church. Now, I have heard in the past, and again, I would probably be for this. You have some guy who's uh, from a church that's leading a Bible study with a bunch of guys in Afghanistan that are deployed and several of the guys in the Bible study get, uh, get saved and they want to baptize them. But there's no church that they go to. And so I've heard of people before, and I wouldn't be in, in disagreement with this, that uh, these men are deputized by their church to baptize under the authority of that church that the, the person's a part of. I would, I, would, I would agree with that. I'm good with that. You see Philip going out and baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch out in the middle of the desert, I believe under the authority of the church at Jerusalem. I'm not against things like that. Is it the best thing? No, but I don't think being deployed out in the middle of the, the desert for 12 months and not having a church to go to is the best thing either, but I think you do with what you can with what you got. It's important to understand that these ordinances were given to the church to carry out. And again, I would say a church that doesn't have the Lord's Supper and a church that doesn't baptize is not a biblical church either. It's a requirement of the church. And again, when we begin to look at the way that God has blessed our church, again, I don't say this to brag or to boast in any way, so if you take it that way, you just totally misunderstood what I'm saying. We've seen, uh, again, we'll have 11 people baptized. I think the last time we baptized, we had like nine baptized. And I think that's the only two baptisms we've had this year. Maybe we've done more. I can't even remember. Again, at the end of the day, I'm not tracking numbers. I'm tracking people. But... If we've baptized 20 people so far this year, and we haven't even made it to summer yet, we're like one quarter into the year. The average Baptist church in America two years ago baptized two people. That's embarrassing. Because that means for every church that baptized four, there was a church that baptized zero. That's troublesome. The fact that there are churches in America where people are not being saved, not being baptized, not being discipled, not growing in their faith, that's a problem. And again, I don't say that to toot our horn. I say that to say God's at work here in a special way and you and I get to be a part of it. Let's steward that blessing well. And please understand, I wanna be like ridiculous clear on this, okay? Our church is not experiencing blessings right now because I'm like a super smart dude who's got these secret spreadsheets that I don't share with anybody, and I've got like a 28-year plan, and this is like phase one of my 28-year plan. I'm not even that smart, okay? We're just a group of people that gather together every single week, love each other, serve each other, preach the Bible, and look to carry out the commands that Jesus gave us, and God pours out his blessing upon that. That's God's favor. That's God's blessing. That's not because you and I are so awesome or because we're super smart, okay? That's God's doing. And again, we say this is marvelous in our eyes, the work that God does. So when we talk about baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper, those are things that are given to the church. Now, what's the mission of the church? This is the the, uh, end of my notes, and so we're almost done. What's the mission of the church? The mission of the church is the Great Commission. That's it. The Great Commission is is repeated in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 1. Five different times Jesus says the same thing. Go into all the world, tell them about me, baptize them, teach them the word, and grow them into be committed followers of me. All the world. Matthew chapter 
28, verse number 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world, amen. Acts chapter one, verse number eight. You shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus descended into heaven. That's the mission. And so for you guys and gals that have ever served in the military, you know this. Your unit, your department, your division, your command has a mission. This is what we do. And you might fail miserably on your mission and have the cleanest bathrooms in the military. But you wouldn't say like, well, I know we're not doing great missionally, but uh, we got the cleanest bathrooms in, in the whole Navy. You should check them out. No, you'd, it'd be like, you're an utter failure, right? Oh, I know, but look at all the other things we're doing. No, you are a failure. When we as a church fail in our mission, we fail to be Jesus's church. The Great Commission, get this, the Great Commission is the only mission. That's it. There's not a secondary mission. There's no side quests to this, okay? It's like, this is the mission. Either we do it or we don't. Now we go. And every place you and I go, we're missionaries on a mission. If you didn't know, that's where the word missionary comes from because we have a mission to perform. Everywhere we go, we're telling people about Jesus. At work, at the store, on my street, my community, my apartment building, with my neighbor, always telling people about Jesus. Hey, if I go on vacation to the mainland, that's great. I'm on vacation, but guess what? You don't take a vacation from the mission. Our, our family, every time we go on vacation that we miss a Sunday, we're always in church somewhere. Always. It's a no-brainer. And we're always carrying gospel tracts, too. Hey, this is for a church in Hawaii. If you ever make it out to Hawaii, you should check us out. But if you don't ever make it, you should read this on the back. It tells you how you can know for sure when you die, you're on your way to heaven. That's going. We're trying to win people to Christ. Every single person in this room that calls himself a Christian should know how to share their faith with another person. If you don't, I will help you. But you need to know. Hey, this is Bobby. He doesn't know if he died today. He's for sure he's going to heaven. Could you sit down and show him from the Bible how he could be sure? You need to know that. Because it's part of the Great Commission. Once people follow Jesus Christ as Savior, it's our responsibility to baptize them. And again, if, if churches aren't baptizing people, you have to wonder, what other parts of the Great Commission are you not following either? <laughs> After people are baptized, you need to get this, here's what Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we're supposed to teach these people every single thing that Jesus said and how to live it out. That's what we do. And so again, that's the Great Commission. And again, it grieves me when churches say like, oh, our mission is to uh, end racism in America. You picked a terrible mission. Like if that's the case, if that's your mission, then stop calling yourself a church and just call it, you know, Honolulu Organization to End Racism. Stop trying to pretend like you're a church because you're not following the mission. You and I don't get to adopt our own mission. Again, can you imagine, for those of us that have served in the military, 
If we went to our commanding officer and says, hey, Skipper, I don't really like the mission we got here. I'm thinking we should adopt a greater mission. How about we end global hunger? That'd be a good one. What do you think about that? It'd be like, shut up and sit down. You don't call the shots around here. But it's, it's funny to me, people who would call themselves pastors that are really imposter pastors want to say like, oh, the mission of the church is to, you know, end human trafficking. Is human trafficking awful? It's terrible. And if anybody knows about it, it should be Hawaii because you know what? We're the one uh, stop between Asia and mainland United States. Look, there's more human trafficking taking place here than you can shake a stick at. But is that why Jesus came? Oh, Jesus came to end suffering. Yeah, spiritual suffering. We can't adopt stopping human trafficking. Now, can you and I be involved in nonprofits that do that? Absolutely. Angela and I have done that before in the past too. But that's not the mission of the church. Mission of the church is go win, baptize, teach. And so get this. Here's the awesome part. You know what we're doing tonight? I'm teaching you everything that Jesus has said about his church. Did you know that by being here tonight, we're actually carrying out the Great Commission? You know why? Because it's what we do. You know, ladies' Bible study taking place on Thursday nights. Uh, they're studying through a book, which uh, I've, I've read through, and my wife's vetted and stuff like that, and so there's some good stuff in there, and there's probably some stuff as she goes through. She's going to like, hey, we should look at this as well, what the Bible says and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to teach people to follow Jesus. That's the Great Commission. You know what we're doing on Saturday when we go for Easter outreach? We're going. That's part of the Great Commission. That's just what we do. And you have a church that doesn't go, win, baptize, or teach. You no longer have a church. And again, when you co-opt a different mission and leave behind the only mission that the church has, you're no longer a church. And so the church should facilitate the spread of the gospel. This is just not locally, but it's worldwide. And we do that through our missions giving program. If you have the Who We Call app, we uh, up- updated all of our missionaries, their latest updates that they've sent us via email, if you want to read on those and figure out how to pray for our missionaries and know what's going on in Ethiopia and Nigeria and Papua New Guinea and things like that, you should totally read up on that this week and pray for our missionaries. You should definitely be involved in giving to missions because that's how we reach the world. And so we facilitate the spread of the gospel as the church. The church facilitates the making of disciples Look, if you haven't been in Who We Call It very long, you know this. One of the big things we do is we preach the Bible and we're big on discipleship. You don't learn how to be a Christian by just copying other people. That'll work for a minute, but you need to really be taught what it means to follow Jesus. And part of making disciples is teaching you how to do that. And here's the great part about being a part of a church. And, and again, some of you might bristle at this. If, if, if that's the case, I'm gonna encourage you just to grow in grace, that's all. One of the benefits of being a part of a church is when people will call you out for your sin. You know, so that's a benefit, that's a huge benefit. Look, watching some preacher on TV provides zero accountability for you. Listen to some service on the internet or listen to somebody's podcast or even sitting down on a Sunday morning with your Bible open in front of your computer screen provides zero interaction and zero accountability for you. Nobody could call you out and says, hey, bro, I haven't seen you in church in a couple weeks. Where have you been? Hey, man, you missed Bible study the last three weeks. Is everything okay with you? Hey, I've seen you talking really unkindly to your wife on the sidewalk, and I'm not trying to get in your business, but, like, dude, Christians don't act like that. You need that, and I need that. 
I love it when people come to me in a spirit of humility and say, hey, you said this, and I don't think that is a good look for you. Hey, you said this, and I don't know if that's what you meant or not, but it sure came across that way. I appreciate that. I'm thankful for that. Thank you for helping me to be a better man. I need that in my life. And that comes from the church making disciples. The church should also facilitate Christian growth. After we become committed followers of Christ, we need to continue to grow. I love what Paul says. I want you to be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always looking to take a next step up. I was talking with one of our men over here at the fellowship time. He said, Pastor, we got a pretty good group of guys over here. He said, it's encouraging to me to look out and just see like manly men like singing about Jesus. Like, He's like, that encourages me. Yes, me too. I love the fact that we have guys that are not ashamed of following Jesus, not even a little bit. That's big. You know why? Because the majority of churches in America, the guys are sitting on the back row looking at their watches and getting up and getting coffee and walking outside and taking a phone call and then waiting on the curb for their wife to finish up at church. I praise God that's not our church. Praise God for that. But when we have a, a men's gathering, Sure, most guys don't like to sign up, but most guys like to show up, right? It's always funny to me, like the week of, we'll have like 10 guys signed up. And like the day before, we have like, you know, 75 guys signed up. Okay, I get it. I'm willing to give you a little bit of grace. But I love a church where people are growing in their faith. One of our men uh, stood up at a men's meeting a couple of weeks ago. Or not a couple, it was a couple months ago when he left. And he said, talk about the impact this church had had on his life. And he stood up, he said, Pastor, I'd never prayed with another man before, before I came to who we call about his church. He said, I remember it was a Wednesday night, I was sitting there, and uh, we split up for prayer, and I was just like, what are we supposed to do? And he said, the guy next to me turns over and says, hey man, let's pray. And he's just like, like right now? Yeah, right now. He's like, okay. He was like, you want me to start? He was like, yeah, you go first. He said, I didn't know what to do. You know, the awesome thing about it was the guy that he told me that he prayed with sent me a Facebook message this past week and said, when I came to Hui Ka, I looked like I had it all together on the outside, but inside I was falling apart. And he said, God really used that church to help me to grow to be a better man. He says, I praise God for that. And I pray for you and your church often. Man, I was just encouraged by that because to think that this guy who said that he was struggling and needed some help had some guys that, that rallied around him and helped him to grow and he was able later to help another man grow in his faith too. That's how this thing works. And again, I love when people are like, I love the way that you do discipleship at your church. What are you talking about? You thought I figured this out by myself? You thought that it was my idea to sit down a guy with another guy and teach him how to be a, a solid follower of Christ. You thought that I was like that smart? That's a biblical idea. Jesus poured his guts into 12 guys, one of them who would stab him in the back, almost literally, and those 11 guys changed the world. That's discipleship. That's how it's done. That's the job of the church. We get to be a part of that. And here's, we'll, we'll talk about this later in this series. I can't wait. Uh, this series has got me so hyped up. But there's gonna come a point in your Christian walk when you're less sitting around going like, well, who's gonna help me grow? And you begin to say like, hmm, who can I help grow? 
I think I'm going to have them over for dinner this Friday night. Hey, I think I'm going to go uh, on outreach with him on Saturday. Hey, I think I'm going to ask him to coffee. Hey, I think I'm going to uh, have her come over and uh, hang out for a bit. That's when you really begin to turn the corner. You begin looking at less for what the church can do for you and more what you can do for your church. Final thought. The church should change the world. I think all of us would lament at the mess that our world is in. All of us. I think all of us would look and say, man, our country is so far gone. We're an absolute mess. I agree. But I do believe that there's one institution in the world that can make all the change in the world, and it is the church. You know what it grieves me? Churches who call out for revival in America. Oh, Lord, we pray for revival in America. We pray for you know, your Holy Spirit to, to sweep through churches and to do a mighty work and call men to righteousness and holiness. And they're praying that for somebody else, but they don't want to pray it for themselves. That's a problem. Because the funny thing is, is we always want revival to take place somewhere else instead of my own heart. Revival starts with me. Before I can ever change the world, I have to change first. I can't ask you to do something that I'm not doing. Hey, you should totally pray. I don't pray, but you should. Church is really important. You should totally be there every time the doors are open. I'm not, but you totally should. No, no, no. Revival takes place in my heart first. I want to be fully right with God so I can bring other people along on the journey with me. Look, every single person in this room absolutely abhors hypocritical leadership, don't we? Oh, you want rules for you, but not rules for me, but that you don't follow yourself. Yeah, that's a problem. We want revival elsewhere, but we don't want it in our own hearts. The, the church really begins to change when we want revival in our own hearts. God, I want you to do something special through me, in me. That's where I want it to take place. And then the church can change the world. You don't think it's possible? I do. I, I, I know, again, in scriptures, you have Judas killed himself. Acts chapter one, what happens? They draw straws to find out who the new apostle is. It's Matthias. And Paul becomes an apostle later. He's an apostle, one born out of due time. So truthfully, most people don't know this. They think there's 12 apostles. There's actually 14 apostles. But of those men, the Bible says this about him. They have turned the world upside down. And you and I are seated here tonight because of the ministry of those men. They changed the world. We might not see the change in our lifetime, but if we continue on the trajectory on, we'll see God change the world. Look, far before I'm concerned about changing the world, I'm concerned, first of all, about changing my house. I'm concerned about transforming my workplace. Again, we like to think in big ideological terms, like, oh, we could change the world. Can you imagine, like, us holding hands from here all the way across the island, singing together? Like, if we could just do that, the whole world could just stop and praise you. That's cute. It really is. We don't want to do the hard work that, hey, there's some stuff in my life that I need to fix, like, today. That's where the church begins to change the world. And I pray to God that the children that are raised up out of who we call a Baptist church go on to carry on the work that you and I started of changing the world. I pray that. I pray that, and we'll talk about this as we get through this series. 
I pray that God would raise up men out of who we call a Baptist church to establish other churches on this island and plant churches. And I've begun to pray in, in more fervency over that over the last several weeks. I pray that God would send people to a foreign mission field from who we call a Baptist church that we could get behind and pray and say, hey, you guys remember so-and-so. They were here faithfully serving and God called them somewhere else and we love them and pray for them and are behind them 110%. I pray for that because that's what the church is supposed to do. So again, as we take a look at the church, the way that Jesus established it, there's gonna be a little bit of a teaching time, but I wanna give you through this series a greater appreciation for what we have. Church isn't just some place that you show up when you feel like it, sing a few songs, endure a really long talk and go home. It's so much bigger than that. Church isn't a place where you come to be entertained or you get to come and laugh at some stories or hear your favorite songs or see your favorite people. It's so much bigger than that. I, I was, I, I'm grieved by a lot, in case you didn't know. Uh, but I was super grieved uh, several years ago. I saw this impastor, imposter pastor, that's what I'll call him, um, who had created this sermon series called Through the Movies uh, for the summertime. And basically, he would take movies and talk about how the movie pointed out Christ. Like, Oh, here's Forrest Gump, you know, a guy who ran across America, you know, that was like Jesus in the wilderness, grew a really long beard, and how Forrest Gump is a picture of Christ, and it's just like, what? (laughs) He did one on Raiders of the Lost Ark and talked about how the ark contained God's promises, and man throughout all time has just been in search of God's promises, just like Indy was looking for the Ark of the Covenant. What? No lie, I'm making this up. The dude came in on a zip line uh, while they played the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme from like the balcony and down to the platform. And it's just like, what? You don't have to do that. It's like, that's not the church. And again, it's not a matter of like, I don't like that. I don't. That's not. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's not helpful. And look again, if the only thing that you can do is zip line to get people to listen to you, you should rethink your calling. Is what I think. You know. But again, over this next several weeks, I want you to think through, what is the church and why is it so important? What can I do? What has God tasked me with? What has God called me to? What's the next step for me? And again, all this will culminate on May the 22nd when we have our very first ever pastoral ordination service, and it's gonna be incredible. It's the one service you'd like of the entire year that you do not wanna miss because we've never done anything like this before. But here's what I pray, and this is my prayer. That our first ordination service that we hold here at Huikala will not be our last that there will be other men that are raised up through this ministry that grow in their faith in Christ, that God calls to uh, pastoral ministry to lead and shepherd and guide people, that we can ordain them and see them used of God in that capacity. That's the idea behind it. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.